This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and this episode is called Curiosity Killed the Copycats. And I'm joined today by the hardest working man in tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com, the man with a plan from Techie Stan, and known to all the cool kids onto Intertubes as Summer's F1. Summers, it is so good to have you back on the show with us. It's very good to be on the show with you again, Matt, to be honest. Well, you must have been fairly busy at your full-time position, staring at the tiny details on high-resolution photographs of car parts. And I'm sure you've got a lot to tell us. Now, I've noticed, and I can understand why, that there's been a bit, um, as we say, of a focus on Ferrari because they were, well, you know, a walking catastrophe wrapped in a disaster. And I think everybody is kind of wondering exactly how they're getting on at this point. And you've, you've written some kind of interesting articles about what they're up to. So what is it that they've been doing? And uh, I think importantly, do you think that, I mean, have, have the last couple of races just, is it a false hope? Is it a false dawn that we're seeing at Ferrari? Or, or do you think that maybe they're onto something? Well, there's a lot going on at Ferrari. That's the that's the top and bottom of it because they have a lot to catch up on, as we know. You know, they are or have been quite a way off because of what happened to them last year in terms of the power unit, and then that obviously had a massive effect on their chassis and aerodynamic development side of things. And what we've started to see over the last few races is Ferrari sort of turn the tables back 
and start to look at developments that they were having at the tail end of last year and start to bring them onto the car again, whereas they'd been sort of retrograded for for this year. Uh, at the start of this year, we had a entirely new uh, aerodynamic uh, configuration in, in some respects. And what we're starting to see now is that they've decided that they've gone down a bit of a cul-de-sac and they're starting to look back at those ideas. And for me, and what my most recent articles have sort of tried to cover is that this comes at a very pivotal time in the development cycle because we're looking at the 2021 car. And so not only are the things that they are doing now relevant to the car for this year, we're also looking at what potentially the car for next year might start to look like as well. Obviously, there's a lot of changes to the aerodynamic regulations to reduce the downforce that the FIA have brought in to help manage uh, things for Pirelli. And for me, a lot of what they're doing is not only to rekey the car for 2020, it's also looking at next year as well. Well, now that's fascinating. What what have you seen in particular that has made you very interested and that convinced you that this was sort of the track that they were on and they weren't just like, you know, desperately rifling the file drawers for any solution that might help them do a little bit better than they'd been? Well, I think the, the thing really for me, Matt, is that it's happened over several races. They've not tried to just literally throw everything onto the car in one go. So they're clearly trying to understand how these things influence one another as well, rather than just thinking, let's put all of the parts on the car and let's see how it goes. So we've seen them change the nose design. They've got new turning vanes underneath the uh, chassis at the front end, they've changed the barge board cluster and side pod deflectors. And most importantly for me, the whole of, of these whole changes is the floor, because obviously that is the area that is going to be affected for 2021. And what we've seen them do is they've changed the leading edge of the floor with the strakes that, that sort of define the flow that goes underneath. Um, and they've also changed the design of the area, the tyre spat area, I call it, in front of the, the, the rear tyre, where you usually see a lot of slots and, and strakes and, and whatnot. They've changed that back and they've retrograded to a solution that they had at the, at the USA Grand Prix, I think it was, in 2019, with three uh, sort of fins ahead of the rear tyre. Um, and then they've changed the section underneath the gearbox, Ferrari have got something that um, sort of looks like a bit of a trough. The floor is like a clam shape where where it goes down into and underneath the, the gearbox area. And over the last few years, they've had a, a roof to that, almost creating some tunnels so the flow can go in there. Whereas for 2020, they took away that roof. So the airflow could obviously travel into that section, but then it, it was free to wander off and, and do its own thing. And it's interesting for me that perhaps looking at the 2021 regulations, they've realised that they need to take a step back. And perhaps that's one of the areas that helps with consistency, especially as obviously they're looking at the diffuser changes as well, which are coming in. And they've also made changes at that at that as well. Right. Well, I mean, it does make a certain amount of sense because we do know, and I know we're going to get into the regulations more specifically in a, in a little bit here, but, but we do know that the floor is going to lose some. So if I can replace on top some of what I'm losing on bottom, then then that's going to be a, a potential way forward. But um, we actually had a question in the Slack from Andy. He's curious. I mean, because they are also going to be limited with just two tokens to changes next year. 
So all of this that they're doing now, is it really going to have that big of an impact on what they're able to achieve, how much they're able to move forward uh, for the 2021 season? I think there's quite a bit of growth that you can see with Ferrari because they're coming back from a, a, a quite a lowly position uh, for themselves relative to where they were. So any kind of progress is going to seem quite large. Uh, we're already starting to see the fruits of that labour and certainly in Leclerc's hands that the car certainly appears to be giving more performance. And again, I've talked about this in the past in the way that certain cars suit certain drivers. And unfortunately for Vettel, it appears that even with the changes, he's not able to close that gap to to Leclerc um, just purely because of the way in which he obviously drives the car slightly differently. Um, but obviously going back to the false hope, let's say, uh, of, of moving into the last few races of this season, I think where we find Ferrari now um, is where we'll find them for the rest of the season. They've kind of plateaued. They will still make some gains because of the parts that they've put on the car. Uh, but I think the biggest gains that we're going to see now are into 2021. And as you say, those tokens, um, that there isn't a great deal that they can spend them on, uh, but they will allow them to, to improve things. And again, we've learned of the problems that Grosjean mentioned that Haas were having with their hydraulic suspension. And this is a, a problem that I believe that Ferrari also carry to a lesser degree. So there are opportunities there for them to be able to make performance gains there too. Well, now now you've gotten me very intrigued. Um, but before I indulge my curiosity too much, I, I do want to ask, obviously the problem at Ferrari was a two-headed, a multi-headed Hydra. It was not just the car. It was the car and the power unit together no matter what they do on the aero side and the chassis side, if they make no power unit improvements, they're not going to see any kind of a major performance increase over this year. What are their options in terms of next season? Do you think they will be able to close that performance gap that was so very, very wide this season? Yes, is the simple answer, Matt. I think one of the biggest things that we tend to overlook is the... Uh, the performance difference gained by the correct lubricants and fuel. And they were locked into those scenarios at the start of this season because they were based, those formulations for the oil and fuel were based on the power unit from last season, let's say. And trying to close that gap in terms of the research and development that's needed to be able to operate a, a, a different type of power unit means that you're automatically going to lose a big portion of your performance. So for me, even if Ferrari don't make huge changes to their power unit design uh, because of obviously the token situation and what we have going on in the world at the moment, I think where the gains will come is being able to change those fuels and lubricants and that will enable them to to push the power unit that little bit harder. Okay, and... Last thing, we've heard that Ferrari does want to spend its tokens at the back of the car. Is this the right place for them? Is this where they need to be focused right now? Or uh, and, and how much is left? How much will they be leaving on the table just because of the um, very unfortunate predicament into which in which they found themselves when these extra restrictions had to come into play because of the global pandemic? I think the important thing to remember, whether you're a Ferrari, Ferrari fan or a fan of any team, is that they're all in the same boat. 
uh, except obviously for Racing Point, who are going to get a free gearbox and rear suspension out of this deal. Uh, but basically, they're all having to maintain a certain degree of the car from this year, almost as if we we are having a B-spec car for next year, let's say. So everybody finds themselves in the same situation. Everybody's having to think long and hard about how they spend those tokens and how to get the best from them. And there's going to be low-hanging fruit for everybody. Um, Each of them will want to spend them in different ways because they'll all think of different ways to make improvements. But what I find will find interesting is the fact that Year on year, the big teams will design a brand, brand new car every single time because they have the money and the resources to do so. Yet the smaller teams find themselves in positions where largely they will carry over their car from one season to the next. Racing points have proven this point for several years because they locked themselves into the Red Bull program. And as soon as they'd got money, they switched to a Mercedes-style design. So I'll find it interesting how the lower end of the grid might merge towards the top end in this respect. Well, now, that's kind of interesting because it sort of leads us towards our next topic, which is the official uh, copycat rules, shall we call them, uh, have been introduced. So now you're talking about teams merging, but... Is that possible? Is Can we do this anymore? Because it seems like to me that the rules now have changed and you're not allowed to do this. So maybe you could uh, walk us through what these changes are and what the implications are uh, for the teams. Because, I mean, as we, we, we know from, um, from the past, it's pretty common practice when a new uh, doodad or gugaw or flick or flimmer or whatever shows up on a car. I, you notice I didn't use the word barge board there <laughs> that that if it looks to be of interest and I know that Alfa Romeo um, or Sauber in years past would be a, a prime candidate for generating interesting stuff that would in, then migrate its way down the paddock. But is this going to be possible in the way that it's been practiced in the past? Yes and no. The, the biggest thing I, I think that these rules cover is blatant copying of like-for-like parts. That is what essentially they're trying to block off. You know, they're trying to prevent teams saying, this rear brake duct is sample A, but sample B from another team looks exactly identical to that part. How did sample A turn into sample B? And that's the problem that the FIA have to cover. It's not that, that they're not trying to stop teams from having similar concepts to one another. Um, I know this year we have seen a a, a spread of teams move more towards uh, a certain design pattern on the rear wing end plates, um, which has started. The Haas and Red Bull rear wing end plate hanging vanes are very, very similar to one another. Now, I don't want to see that go away from Formula One. I want teams to be able to look at designs and say, yeah, that looks like it might work. I'll put that in CFD. If it runs the numbers, we'll build one, we'll put it in the wind tunnel. And if the wind tunnel says, yes, that's similar to what we've seen in CFD, let's build a proper version of it and put it on the car. What we don't want to see is teams running exactly the same things because there's a problem with that. 
they may as well then just buy things off the shelf from one another. And that is where the FIA are trying to step in and say that you are a constructor, you must design your own IP and you must make your own parts. And, and obviously this comes about because of the pink Mercedes from this year. There is a huge amount of problem within the paddock about the pink Mercedes and how it came to be. And if you read the rules in which that they have been written, it suggests almost that certain items were copied with certain techniques and the FIA are trying to outlaw that that sort of predicament from from becoming the norm, let's say. Uh, so you would be then perhaps referencing uh, the use of photographs or images combined with software that converts them to point clouds, curves, surfaces, or allows CAD geometry to be overlaid onto or extracted from the photograph or image. The use of stereo photogrammetry, 3D cameras, or any 3D stereoscopic techniques, any form of contact or non-contact surface scanning, any technique that projects points or curves on a surface so as to facilitate the reverse engineering process. I mean, that's really, they're being kind of specific there. And and so you're saying this is, in essence, a clue to what they suspect um, Raising Point did uh, with regards to the Mercedes. I, I, I'm not saying it specifically. I'm saying the FIA are looking at the problem and making the suggestion that this could have happened. So they are covering their bases and they are saying that this is no longer, uh, you know, we're not going to tolerate this kind of behaviour. You cannot simply copy somebody else's design by having a look at it and using software or 3D scanning to be able to reproduce your own version of it. And that, to me, speaks highly about how closely some of these surfaces must match one another. They wouldn't be putting these sort of things into the regulations if things weren't, you know, to very finite detail, a copy of one to the other, because you just wouldn't think to to think to that level if you hadn't seen as I mentioned before, exhibit A and exhibit B before and put them in front of one another and said, are these identical or not? You know, that how do you get to that? And that's another part of the, the change in the regulations. The FIA have actually suggested that they will be able to go back to the team if they suspect this sort of foul play. They'll be able to go to the team and they'll say, we want proof. We want you to prove to us where your investigation started and the process that was involved to get through to the stage that you're at currently. So that kind of then, you know, puts to bed this whole scenario with copying like for like. You know, I don't think that the FIA or anybody else really has any problem with conceptually taking ideas from other teams. As you said earlier, Alpha and previous to that, as they were known, Sauber used to do uh, certain things that, other teams then copied, and it's been very similar for Toro Rosso for a number of years. Uh, they came up with some fascinating ideas that have been copied up and down the grid, even you know as far as the the front end. So I don't think we want don't want to see that sort of thing, but we do need to cover off the bases to stop the sort of cheating, let's put it, that might have or might not have been happening. So let me see if I understand you correctly. Um... And uh, yeah, geez, this is one of these 99 part questions that I have in my head. But number one, most importantly, essentially, if I'm using a laser scanner or photogrammetry, 
I'm skipping the bit where I've seen a flat picture of a curved surface and had to work it out on my own. Correct. And, and they feel like they can look at how closely those curved surfaces match and determine which ones were worked out from flat photographs and which ones were illegal, which ones were cheated with software. Like it's like using it's like using the online calculators in the fancy math classes. They tell you not to do it, but you can do it anyway, and it's a big advantage. And so, and so, in essence, they're not having to devote the same resource. They might as well have bought the part off the shelf, which makes it a spec series, which is absolutely what no one wants Formula One to be. We want it to be cost effective. We want the competition to be aimed at the right bits, but we do not want a spec series. We have others of those to play with. And so then my last question is, is that is the as how precisely the parts match going to be part of what they use to police this? Or, I mean, are they going to have historic data? We can see this person copied this part. This is how close the match was. You say you copied this from a flat photograph, but it's 100 times more accurate than what we would expect to find based on previous instances when the software wasn't available. I mean, is that is that where you think they're going? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're kind of getting into the weeds in terms of how closely one surface matches another, because obviously within a regulation bounding box, you will only be able to do certain things. But as I mentioned, the exactness of one surface compared to another is problematic. As you say, we don't want to be in a spec series. And if we do want to be in a spec series, then we have to go the full hog. Um, let's have the same cars. But that isn't Formula One. So I don't want to see things go in that direction. There is obviously going to be many more parts on the car in 2022, the next set of regulations that will be more of a spec series style of thing. But there will still be the difference where you'll be able to tell or certainly I will be able to tell the difference if they're all white. I've had this argument before. If all the cars were white, I could tell the difference between all 10 of them. And I know that doesn't come across for everybody, but I know the difference between each car. However, if you would have put the W10 of last year alongside the RP20 of this year, telling those differences, if you narrowed in the angles, would be exceptionally difficult because I've tried it and it is difficult to see in certain areas of that car where the differences lie. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. And yet they still haven't extracted that same level of performance out of the car, have they? No, but we have to remember, and again, I have said this before, there are, although they have essentially got a W10 in terms of the aerodynamic platform, they are still using a lot of their own parts in terms of the suspended elements of the car. Racing points still supply the inboard suspension elements, both front and rear. They don't buy those from Mercedes because they wanted to have their own known data points, and that was one of them. Um, So there are elements of that car that, although are very similar to last year's Mercedes, as everybody knows, there are other areas of the car that operate in very different ways. So to call them the same car is, is difficult. But also on top of that, we have to remember that how far ahead is the W11 compared to the W10 in terms of lap time. That's the difference between this year's car and last year's car and a racing point and a Mercedes. So, you know, 
having last year's car doesn't necessarily make you quicker. Fair enough. Um, speaking of interesting mysteries to solve, I noticed um, when um, oh uh, when when one of the people I follow on Twitter tweeted about the usage of power units that Latifi, Giovinazzi, and Ocon all are still on their second power unit. And we only have four races left in the season. I can't imagine they're going to give them new ones now, this close to the end. Um, but why exactly do you think that's the case? Like, like, what do you think they're hoping to gain by that? And especially, I think, in the case of Renault, I mean, we've had Ocon with four DNFs, all mechanical this year. They're one point up with on two other teams for third in the constructors, it seems remarkable to me that if they are just playing dice trying to save money, that that's what they would actually be up to. So, so what else could be going on here? And I mean, and have you heard anything else about it? Or is this just me, um, you know, finding some random thing and thinking it's interesting, which is like, you know, admittedly, one of the things I like to do. Well, to be fair, Matt, I did find this intriguing when you mentioned it to me, especially as it's three different power unit manufacturers as well. That That's what I find intriguing is that uh, we're not talking about one power unit manufacturer perhaps having a problem with supply, and that could be one of the reasons that we're we're seeing this is that obviously there's a there's an issue where you know we're in a situation where the world isn't quite where it should be. Is everybody getting the supplies they need? Are they having to run things longer than they should do? Um, and on top of that, I think there's been quite a spate of unreliability this year as well and so to be in a situation where we've got three drivers from three running three different engine manufacturers in the back of their car only having used as you say the not the full allotment of their power unit it does seem rather strange but for me i think it's predominantly to do with the fact that are they just being used as the dead horse in the race to see how far things can go it just seems weird though that we've got three manufacturers perhaps trying that and i don't know like you say it could just be a coincidence but it is an interesting one at that okay and fair enough and john m would also like to know um from our slack chat is do you think reliability overall this year has been a bit well i mean i hate to use substandard because historically speaking it's so far beyond the pale as to be ridiculous but relative to our own tiny bubble of the last year or so does it seem like um there's been a little uh, there's been a m- more lack of reliability this season than previous seasons. And, and would you attribute it to that same thing? Just uh, supplies and just general difficulties with, you know, being in the world with a global pandemic sort of getting in your way. I, I do think that that's one of the issues is is obviously the, the supply situation. But I also think that people have to remember that we are going to circuits that we haven't been to before, or certainly not in the hybrid era. So, we are putting the power units under a certain amount of strain that they're not used to. I mean, Nürburgring, in the temperatures that we had, you know, they're unknown for the sort of performance levels that we've had in the past. And you can run as many tests as you like on the test beds and on the dynos, but, you know, there's only so much time. And the the teams haven't got a huge amount of data going to some of these circuits. Portimao, for example, you know, the last time that anybody turned a wheel at Portimao in an F1 piece of F1 machinery uh, was back in 2009, I believe, or 2008, one or the other. So, you know, to go there and race and not have any data 
you know, they're working off of a, a smaller selection of data. And so you're putting the power unit through a set of parameters, perhaps that you are not entirely happy with, I think. And that for me is a good thing because I feel like sometimes Formula One know too much, you know, the engineers and uh, and the drivers and everybody within the sport knows too much about what's going on. Um, perhaps a, to- a topic for another uh, another podcast, but you know the, the 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 amount of data that is collected over a race weekend is bonkers, and that then just goes into a historic pool, and they're able to use that for uh, the next race going forward, and that works with their simulation and so on and so forth, and you know going to races that we haven't gone to before or for a very long time is going to have caused the teams and the manufacturers quite a bit of a problem, I think. I'm not going to say that certain co-hosts mocked me when I pointed out that Turkey is a notable tire eater and having not been there in a long time, it could really turn into a very interesting pit stop strategy battle, assuming there's no safety cars or other complicating factors. But here you are agreeing with me that, in fact, going to tracks where they lack historical data and and going to tracks when they don't have time to develop the normal amount of data and, I think, run the simulator overnight with a driver in it to test setups. Well, I I think I'm in favor of that. I sort of I I like the idea that there would be a lottery. Like I saw it on Twitter today. Someone's talking about the round four because of the dropout of Vietnam. Was that you? Mm hmm. I yes. like the lottery round where they find out two weeks ahead of time where it is they actually have to go and they don't have time to do their usual preparations because it seems like we've got more interesting racing when we've gone to these new tracks, when we've gone to these tracks they've not been to in a long time. Yeah, and I think from a driver perspective, you you see that as well. A lot of the drivers are switched on differently to the circuits that, and the way that they approach them. And you can see the old heads versus the new heads in the way in which that they're driving those circuits and the way in which that they're using and managing their energy and their fuel and their tires and everything else that's going on. And these circuits, for me, there's a hidden narrative with anything that I watch in Formula One. Uh, I always look for something that perhaps others aren't looking at. Um, And for me this year, the interesting part about going to new circuits has been the fact that we've got this situation where, uh, you know, they don't have the data and everybody's trying something a little bit different. It's been pretty fantastic. Um, can we take a minute? Okay. Can we take several minutes? And can we get more specific? Because everyone's talking about the 21, the new regulations, the aero regulations. And let's just go back over. I'm, in my understanding is that these regulations came about primarily because the FIA were concerned about the levels of downforce being generated by the teams and that with no changes and the current pace of development that they would not, that the tires would essentially become marshmallows by the end of the 21 season. And so they felt that a downforce cut was required. And having, exactly. And having done that, what exactly are they changing on the car? Who is it going to affect and 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 who do you think is already sort of farthest along in adapting to these new regulations? Okay, as usual, that's a multifaceted question. Um, just to go over where how we've got here first. So, as you mentioned, the FIA decided that the the tires wouldn't be able to sustain the 
uh, downforce levels that the cars had gotten to. And I think it's important to remember that Pirelli do a, a great job in the sport. They take a lot of stick, uh, but this would have been the third year in a row that we would be running the same tyre. And that is far too long to be running the same tyre with an increasing amount of downforce being added. Probably somewhere in the region of maybe 35 to 40% more than what the tyres originally started out life at. Maybe I'm being a bit over-ambitious there with that figure, but even so, I would suggest that there's a huge amount of downforce coming from 2019 when the tyre was introduced to the end of the 2021 cycle. You know, that would be a massive, massive vault in terms of the amount of downforce that you add into the car. Um, but what I find interesting is the fact that the FIA set a limit of 10%. That is what they wanted to cut off the car. They wanted to reduce the car's downforce by 10%. And obviously there was varying ways in which that they originally thought they wanted to do that. But they looked at it and thought, we need to obviously maintain a certain amount of sensibility in terms of costs as well. So you can't just start lopping all different parts of the car apart because it's going to cost the teams far too much money. So they decided on lopping off the rear quarter of the floor in front of the rear tyre, which has been an extremely overdeveloped section of the car over the last few years. As we know, there are so many slots, fully enclosed holes, strakes, flaps, whatever you can think of placed in front of the rear wheel to try to disturb the turbulence that's created by the tyre behind it. And the reason they do that is that when the tyre deforms, the platform of the tyre deforms, it pushes airflow laterally into the diffuser's path. And obviously that results in a dramatic drop in downforce. On top of that, when we introduced the 2017 regulations and they widened the floor, they didn't change the rules regarding the continuity of the floor. So what we ended up with was the availability of fully enclosed holes instead of slots. And that's quite an important thing. A fully enclosed hole is a hole. A slot means that you have to perforate the edge of the floor. And in order that the regulations for 2017 allowed the floor to become wider, they didn't change the continuity rules to widen that. They literally left them where they were. So the outer portion of the floor can have these fully enclosed holes in it. And that now means that effectively the edge of the floor has become an air skirt. You think of it like ground effect when we had the skirts on the side of the cars in the 70s. Effectively, they're trying to do that with the airflow to prevent the turbulence that's created by the front tyre being ingested back under the floor to reduce performance. And so what the FIA have effectively tried to do is limit the amount of... They're trying to limit the the, the um, performance that teams can now get for 2021 to reduce the overall downforce. And that is obviously why they decided to put this cut in place. However, I'm sorry to go on for such a long period of time with just me speaking, <laughs> but basically they decided that that 10% that they originally thought wasn't enough because the teams had actually gained more performance than they initially thought. The data from the opening five races, I believe it was, they looked at, and the teams had gathered even more downforce than they originally anticipated they would during that period. And so that's why we've ended up with even more things being changed going into 2021. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. All right, I'm going to play the game of, and now this is interesting. You know, I like to talk about having to help my daughter with calculus. I took calculus. I got two A's and a B over a whole year in high school. Theoretically, I understand calculus. And yet, when it comes to certain problems, I have to sit there while my daughter explains to me how they ought to be done. And I'm going to do the same thing. I was fairly sure I knew what a fully enclosed hole was until you started talking about it so animatedly. And I'm just, I just want to go over the difference between a slot and a fully enclosed hole and, and what it is that you're referencing there, because I suspect not everybody will be, um, not everybody kind of like me will be up on the exact difference between the two. Okay. So a fully enclosed hole is what you would su- suspect a hole to be. Uh, it, it doesn't, doesn't meet with the edge of the surface. So if we, if we're looking at the floor, and you look to the edge of the floor, the hole would be in board of it, and it doesn't actually meet with the side of the floor. A slot, however, or what I determine to be a slot, would perforate the edge of the floor. Now, the reason that the teams would want to use a hole over a slot is that you lose performance with a slot because you're creating that perforation, and effectively you're allowing the floor to either flex under load, which you wouldn't be if you had a hole, Um, or, you know, you are just leaking performance through the slot. So that's the reason why all of the teams try to have the holes where possible rather than slots. Okay. And given that, and given, given what, what you've seen 
of the development so far, aside from Ferrari that we've already covered, is do you see anyone else already getting ready for these new regulations? Well, all of the teams will have already started to prepare for the, the next set of regulations. The only teams that have actually physically put things on the car, though, uh, alongside Ferrari, are McLaren. They had a 2021 specification floor in Belgium, and Red Bull ran a floor, although there's not photography of it, um, that is clear. I've got the pictures, but you can't actually see it clearly enough to, to be able to use them. Um, they use one in Portimao to collect some data. And I believe Max Verstappen actually referenced it in one of his interviews that he was running the 2021 floor. Um, on top of that, he was also running a 2021 spec diffuser um, because that's another area of the car that has been cut with the extra uh, section of the regulations that the FIA have put into place. And am I wrong then? And because I'm thinking about the edge of the floor, am I wrong then in thinking that those teams who are running higher rigs are going to have more of a challenge in dealing with it. And have you seen anything from those teams aside? You mentioned Red Bull a little bit. Like, are they going to drop the rake? Do you think they can do other things to help seal the edge of the diffuser since some of their toys have been taken away? Again, an interesting thing is Red Bull uh, in this respect, because for a long period of time, Red Bull still had a lot of downforce, but were perhaps one of the least users of the edge slots and holes. And they didn't work the airflow as hard as everybody else in that section. So it's not a two into one solution. You know, two into one doesn't go in this scenario. And I've, I actually feel that even running at lower rate like Mercedes, you're still going to struggle because you're taking away surface area. And we all know the reason why Mercedes run the long wheelbase is because they want that longer floor to work with. So it, it's, it's not an easy answer. I don't think it's going to hurt one more than, say, the other. There is going to be a loser overall, clearly, but I don't think it's an easy yes, A is going to make a, a loss compared to B because that all of the teams will work and find different ways to be able to recover those losses. In fact, I would imagine that most of the teams have already found that 10% and, in fact, are already starting to make gains into that problem area. You know, by the time we reach the first race of next season, we will be at the downforce level that the 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 FIA didn't want to be at. And we'll already be looking for more performance. That's just absolutely mental. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about computers and artificial intelligence, but I can't ignore such a good segue to the subject of tires because it's come to my attention that we're going to have new tires anyway next season, even though we didn't think we were going to have new tires. Pirelli's been testing some prototypes. Um, and it looks like, uh, uh, from listening to what Mario Isola had to say, that they were very, very concerned about sort of the thermal degradation, about the temperature of the tire. And the reason they wanted a new construction is they very much want to be able to run the tires at lower pressures. So I I'm wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about why that might be and, and what we're looking at in terms of the Pirelli change for next season. Okay, so I know they've said that we're having these tyres, but they're still going to have to run them again. Uh, I think it's this weekend, actually, they're going to run in a free practice session uh, because they haven't run the rear tyres yet. 
because a lot of the teams hadn't got 2021 specification floors to be able to accept the design of the new tyre because the sidewall will be slightly different in the way in which it reacts with the platform of the tyre. The change in the construction of the tyre effectively to be able to allow them, as you say, to be able to operate at a lower PSI but still handle uh, the amount of downforce that we're expecting the cars to have next season. Um, I think it's interesting that they're going down this path because they did say for a long time that we were going to end up with the same specification for, for three years. And there's not a lot of testing going into having a new tyre for next year. But as you say, lowering the pressure is something that all of the teams and the drivers are especially keen on doing because we're running the tyres at a really high PSI uh, to try to combat the problem that we've already encountered, which is obviously we've got too much downforce. So the only way to try to mitigate that problem is to raise the pressures. And it becomes a never-ending cycle of chasing the problem. And so I think it's a sensible move because obviously we're going to end up with a with a fresh tyre, which means that there are also opportunities for teams to make uh, advantages over other teams because they will find different ways of making that tyre work for them. We all know how the deformation of the tyre changes the aerodynamic profile of the, the car. And so we could see that having an impact on on certain teams like we've had with Red Bull in the past, you know, with the exploding tyres in 2013 that we ended up going back to a different specification of tyre because it didn't really suit Red Bull. So let's make the tyres do things they shouldn't do. Well, that's fascinating because I believe it was uh, Red Bull I saw tweeting out that a 3% improvement in tyre grip equals one second a lap. Um, but in terms of lower pressure, in terms of the pressures and the tyres and how they interact with the track surface, am I right in thinking that one of the reasons that the teams would want a lower pressure is it would allow for a bigger contact patch relative to a higher pressure? It changes the load profile on the tyre. So if we have more pressure in the tyre, you change the relationship between the central portion of the tyre and the shoulder of the tyre. And a lot of the problem that we're seeing this this year in terms of uh, blistering and uh, you know just degradation in, in, in general is because the tyre the is being pushed more to the edge, to the shoulder of the tyre. And that isn't where the, the, the teams want to have a problem because obviously that will impact performance and then that means managing tires and then it just becomes a cycle of the the everybody is managing and that's why you know I've I've referenced it to the holding pattern at an air, airport before and that's what we end up in with tire stops we end up in a holding pattern where nobody wants to go and land because they want somebody else to land first so that they can either get that data and understand what they're doing or they think that they can eke out the life or they're in the holding pattern and they're in the wrong holding pattern because somebody else is in their window behind them. So they can't land because otherwise they'll crash into another plane. And that's how we get into the situation out on the racetrack because that plane that is circling in their window is going to come out in their pit window. And that is what effectively is happening out on the track. The driver doesn't want to make a pit stop because he doesn't want to interact with the driver that is going to 
compromise his strategy. And so that's the that's the problem that we have with overloading the tires effectively. The teams just want more margin at the end of the day and the drivers want to be able to push the cars harder. So, you know, we might be taking some downforce off of these cars for next year, but I still predict we're going to be going faster because we're making this tire change now as well. Right. And then the last thing I wanted to ask about, just to make sure my understanding was clear, is that in general, if you run a tire at a higher pressure, it's going to get hotter sooner. And yet one of the major major challenges faced by all of the teams is that the tires tend to overheat. So in essence, their window is getting tinier and tinier. We need higher pressures so the tires don't explode. But then we can't put as much energy into them because that stresses the shoulder out like we saw. Well, I mean, I'm assuming it's Silverstone, maybe. And then, you know, what about what about um, Verstappen's tire at, at Imola? I mean, was this was this is this been proven to be debris or could this have been another tire tire failure? And if so, would it be down to these kinds of high pressures that we're talking about? And then while you're trying to manage that, oh, don't overheat them. But we've made it way easier to overheat them because the pressures are ridiculously high. Is that sort of. Is that in the right direction there? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We're caught in a bit of a trap, unfortunately, to cycle. Um, and we're right in the middle of there. And it's because we're using a tyre that's effectively two years old. And I think that's predominantly the reason we're shifting to a new tyre next year, because the problem will only worsen and that operating window will become even more narrow. In terms of the tyre issues we've seen, we've had uh, stroll in the barriers at Mugello and we've had Max Verstappen's uh, failure at Imola and I believe both of those were debris related so the other thing to remember is that when you have the pressures higher you're putting more peak stress on the tyre in other words when you are loaded up which is what they both were at the point of failure you're effectively putting the tyre in a situation or a stress level where it doesn't want to be. And if you suddenly enter debris into that scenario, well, you're just going to get what happens, a, a, a tyre failure, unfortunately. All right, last question. Um, Formula One is moving from the 13-inch tyres it currently runs, which are delightfully unpredictable in terms of tyre squirt, to a much more predictable 18-inch tyre. Is this going to help with these other issues that we're discussing and and more to the point because i've seen the articles out already is it going to be possible for pirelli do you think to do the testing necessary to make the switch in 22 which is now what they're aiming for okay so pirelli have suggested that they feel they're under pressure uh there's no pun intended there actually uh because of this scenario they don't feel they've got enough time to develop the 18-inch wheel rim, uh, sorry, the 18-inch tyre to go on the wheel rim um, because of what's happened over this year. You know, they're wanting to have tests during this year and next year, and that is problematic because the 2022 car is reliant on that tyre. We can't have a 13-inch wheel and the current Pirelli size of tyre and the new car because that whole car design is reliant on having less turbulence created by the deformation of the tyre. And so if we end up in a situation where Pirelli aren't comfortable, we could see the, 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 the new car being delayed again. Again? So like now we'd be talking about 23 for the new regulations? 
Well, I can't see another scenario unfolding because we can't have the 13-inch tyre with, tw- with the with the ground effect car. They're not they're not designed to work together. Right. If, and if and if you do go down that scenario, let's say everybody just says, well, let's just bolt on the 13-inch wheel uh, and tyre combination to the 2022 car. The car's not going to perform the way that it was initially intended to. And then we're all going to say, oh, these cars are useless. We were guaranteed of better racing. What's going on? And so you have to use a, a bit of common sense. And if Pirelli aren't going to be ready, then we have to delay the car, uh, as, uh, That, in my opinion. And what we have to remember is that the teams haven't had the ability to be able to design their 2022 cars anyway. The FIA took away that instrument from them uh, because they're, they're monitoring uh, what's being designed for that car to try to lessen uh, the, the the crossover. Obviously, you can uh, make decisions within the mind of how things are, are going to pan out, but obviously the rules regarding wind tunnel and CFD, etc., try to limit the amount of work that the teams can do on the 2022 car because of the pandemic, etc. So for me, at least, if Pirelli come out and say we're not ready, then we have to have ser- a serious talk about moving the GE car to 2023. That's that's amazing. It hadn't really occurred to me that it would have that much of an impact. So it's really, it's going to come down to whether or not Pirelli feel that in the circumstances starting next season, they can accomplish the amount of testing necessary to feel comfortable putting that tire on that car. Yeah, and obviously there there was talk of mule cars and all of that sort of thing. So um, it'll be interesting to see where we go very quickly into the start of next season as to how those conversations unfold. Uh, but as I say, if it were me and I were looking at it right now as a project and thinking we're not going to meet the targets, you have to seriously think about moving the target. Otherwise, why are we doing these things in the first place? Fair enough. Now, the last thing I want to bring up, I, I know we've talked about the new rules. Um, but I noticed, um, and, and this may be really better done in an, in an entirely different show, but I noticed in my uh, random walk through Twitter that there was a new artificial intelligence solution to Navier Stokes equations, which normally I'll let you explain what that is, but I'll just I'll just say those are the equations that they use for CFD and stuff like that. But what was interesting about it to me was that it seemed like it was going to take a lot less resource to solve these equations in the future than it's taken in the past. And and is that a potential loophole? Well, I guess not a loophole, but I mean, is that a potential door for a Formula One team to walk through in terms of the current regulations? Yes and no. Um, basically, I, I feel that the Formula One teams are at a a very different level in terms of their understanding of uh, CFD when you compare them to other industries, let's say, because they have a very narrow mindset about how they use their tools. Uh, The move to a more CFD prominent scenario for 2009 obviously showed that Red Bull had pre-planned that scenario because I feel that they had a massive advantage over the rest of the field when it came to being able to react to certain things we only have to look at uh, the way in which they adopted the double diffuser over a very short period of time Um, let's say at a better level than anybody else on the grid 
And yes, their car perhaps had a, a, a certain amount of solutions that enabled it to be competitive with the Braun. And obviously the Braun had very little in terms of development for that season as well. But for me, the way in which that they caught up showed to me that they were able to operate within that those regulation parameters much better than anybody else. And that was obviously when we come out of the full-blown wind tunnel and test era into a more simulation-based era. And since then, we've had a massive downturn in what teams can do in terms of wind tunnel and you know all the other bits and pieces that are associated with it. But you make those gains early on, like Red Bull did, and you carry those forward all the way through. You know, you only have to compare that with Mercedes and the way that they operate in the hybrid era. They they got a massive head start into the hybrid era because they knew that they needed to with their power unit and they've carried that advantage all the way through compared to their rivals. So I think what you're saying about AI is certainly a very interesting avenue. And I, I'm not saying that the teams aren't already doing it, but I feel that they have some tools at their disposal uh, in terms of solving uh, the equations that are perhaps more unique to Formula One or motorsport that aren't used in other areas of the industry. All right, fair enough. You bring up Red Bull. And I did want to ask one more question. We talked a lot about Ferrari and we talked about, you know, how much they were set back by the regulation changes that affected them by the power unit and by the fuels and by the fact that their arrow no longer matched the power they could put out. I mean, it's, it's just been, but I think if I look at the performance year to year, I don't think Red Bull was really in a great place either. And it seems like Ferrari is in for a bit of a reset and a bit of a resurgence based on what we've seen so far. Is Red Bull between this season and next season going to be able to cure whatever it is that is ailing them right now? I think the thing with Red Bull is that um, they've kind of had to take up the role of Ferrari as the second best team in the sport because of what happened to Ferrari. And we have to remember how far off in comparison Red Bull were last year compared to where they are this year. And to me, I feel like they've made a fairly decent amount of gain compared to where they were last year. But they started out the season with a, let's say, handful of a car and they've had to tone that thing down in order to get the best out of it. And I would say five races in, they really started to understand and unlock the set up parameters of that car and able to get both drivers feeling comfortable because I think that's one of the other things that we have to remember is that at Red Bull, we have two drivers that seem to want to drive the car a little bit differently to one another. And I think that's where their performance differences are compared to one another. Verstappen's more of an arrive and drive driver, a bit like Hamilton, where he can just eke that little bit more out of it um, relative to his teammate. And for me, from a performance perspective, the Red Buller has not only improved aerodynamically throughout that period, it's also improved from a compliance point of view. Because when you first watch the car in testing and at the first few races, it was a bit of a pig. It didn't want to turn in. It didn't want to do things mid-corner. And it's also a different car on high and low fuel loads. If you watch the races, you will notice... When the car is on high fuel load, it 
operates very differently to when it's on a low fuel load. And so I think there's, as I say, there's several things to think about with Red Bull. They took the mantle over from Ferrari as the second best team behind Mercedes. And we all know that they're a little bit down on power because of the Honda power unit, which again, they've made massive leaps forward. Um, But it's just a big reset for Red Bull in terms of being able to chase Mercedes. They were previously chasing Ferrari and now they don't have to chase Ferrari because Ferrari have been pegged back. So I think that gap to Mercedes has actually closed quite a lot. The problem that you've got in all of these scenarios is Mercedes haven't really been developing this year's car. They've kind of just started work on 2021 a lot earlier than any, everybody else. So are they going to turn up with the W12 and absolutely decimate everybody? That is the biggest question you have to ask yourself. That is unbelievably ominous, but also kind of awesome. I have to admit. Summers, where can we find you on the internet? What are you doing these days that we should be knowing about? Obviously, find me on Twitter, SummersF1. Uh, find my work over on motorsport.com and very, very occasionally you can find my work on my own website, which is summersf1.co.uk. Lovely. And if you want more techie goodness, listen out for a special Missed Apex segment coming up with race car engineering. We'll be talking power units with Stuart Mitchell. And if you want to take a really deep dive, and I really suggest that you do, be sure to check out summersf1.co.uk and be sure to hit the link for the latest Missed Apex episode as well. As for me, I'm MattPT55 on the Twitters. And remember, drive hard, play loose, be kind to your tires. I still have a hard time believing I played this. So a whole a whole show on artificial intelligence? Maybe. Why not? Alright. Should we I'm sure we could pad out a show on AI? And how it works in F1? Sounds like fun. Maybe we could give it a go. Alright then. You're on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 